Well, let me say good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll start in verse 8 of chapter 5. Let me bring greetings from the Pillar Network, the churches that make up that network. It is a joy to be here uh, to pick up on a series that uh, my dad started. Uh, Before we jump in, I do need to just gripe about your pastor just a little bit, okay? And I'm sure most every preacher that's come has said this, but your pastor leaves to go on sabbatical and he leaves the the guest to preach one of the most depressing books in all the Bible and then calls us friends. So I, and then worse for me, you know, a couple of things you're told just not to preach on often are to preach messages that have a doomsday message or that are about money. And your pastor has given me one that has both. And so I can't say that I feel the love from Pastor Ryan this morning. And, And really like with the joking aside, there is a stark realism to this text, okay? Some of you in this room would call that pessimism, but there's a stark realism to the book of Ecclesiastes and in particular, how it would view something like the love of money. That's the topic that we're gonna see this morning. As with the other topics that you've seen along the way, we will see that money, that the, the love of money is also meaningless. And this text is gonna show us in basically very painstaking and honest ways. For it is true that a, a craving for things will never be fulfilling. And even more poignant than that, uh, you can't take it with you. The things that you fill your life with, you can't take, take it with you. In one sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is a brutal but honest gut punch about the realities of life in a world that is devastated by the fall, that is devastated both by our father Adam's sin, but also our own sin. But thankfully, I think, and hopefully I'll show you this uh, this morning, it's not a book without gospel hope. And so we have much to, to rejoice in, even as we look at something that gives a lot of brutal honesty about the life that we face. Certainly it shows us that apart from godly wisdom, what James would call wisdom from above, if all we have is, is this life below the sun, all we have is what is under the sun, all we have is this life, then we should, as some of the philosophers say, simply eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow it's, it's all over. And yet we know that's not the truth. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is supposed to provoke in us something. It's supposed to provoke in us a longing beyond the sun. And how even something like money should be seen uh, with wisdom from above. And, that, and that's what we hope to look at uh, this morning along the way. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you the applications up front. And then I'll repeat them near the end. But just so that you'll have them in your mind as we sort of work our way through the text. And it's just simply this. Number one, be content under the sun. Number two, build for what is beyond the sun. And then number three, be generous because of the sun. And that one is S-O-N rather than S-U-N. So be content, build for what is beyond, and then be generous because of what the sun has done for us. Now let me read the text and then I'm gonna pray and ask for God's help as we work through an important topic And the King Solomon writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves the wealth of his income. This is also vanity." When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich, rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and life's heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that his days, his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better in the sight of eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after wind. Whatever he has come to be has already been named and is not known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you for your word. Even as we think on a book that certainly has serious themes. Father, we know that you must show us the harsh realities of life that are under the curse and that are dominated by sin so that you can show us the sweetness of the Savior. So, Father, help us to think well about money, to think about things, to think about the topic of contentment. Father, now my prayer is that you simply would sanctify us in the truth. Father, we know your word is truth. So, Father, now would you help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people? Would you help us to be changed from one degree of glory to another? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a friend in high school who seemed to have everything, seemed to have an amazing life. His, his dad had made a ton of money through different business ventures. One of those kind of included having a hand in developing that, you know, that little garlic butter sauce that comes in every Papa John's pizza box. 
And so my friend had this huge house. He had the entire basement to himself. In the basement was a, was a big screen TV, a fridge always stocked with sodas, any video game that we wanted to play. Right outside of the basement where he lived was a pool, a pool house with another big screen TV. And then right outside of the pool house was a driveway that had my 17-year-old friend's BMW. He seemed to have it all. And yet, the more time we spent over there, things were not what they appeared to be. See, his father was so driven by money and continued success that we would go over there almost once a week to stay at his house, and we never saw his dad there. In fact, his dad never came to one of his son's basketball games in high school. It appeared that his dad was content substituting a life with his son for giving his son good things. And not only that, every time we spent the night over at his house, if we happened to venture upstairs at two or three in the morning, we would see the same thing. Every single time. Which was that his mom would drink until she passed out on the couch. And her husband would never come home. You know, that story is not unique to my friend. It's the sad reality of this passage. It's the brutal honesty of this chapter. This is what becomes of craving for things under the sun. This is what comes of people who build their lives on things rather than build their, their lives on the things that really matter. It holds heartache for this life and more than that, this passage is telling us it is meaningless for the life to come. This passage will teach us that rather than a, a greed for money and a, a greed for things, that contentment with what you have and having people around you to enjoy it with is so much better than having lots of stuff. And the truth is, we can hear something like that. Most of us in this room can hear a statement like that that I've just made, and we can say, yes, of course that is true. It is better to have contentment. It is better to have happiness. It is better to have love than it is to have all kinds of stuff. And yet, if we are honest, regardless of whatever tax bracket we find ourselves in, the pull to have stuff, the drive to want more is deep within us. Even more significant than that, and this, this life is all that we have, the, the dogged pursuit of things is a sad pursuit because ultimately Job would remind us, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Or if you're like me from the south, naked you came into the world and naked you will leave. This pursuit will mean nothing upon our death. This pursuit will mean nothing when our time under the sun ends. But thankfully, the Bible details for us how we should view money under the sun, how we should think about it in, in light of the life beyond the sun, and then in light of that, how we should live now. So my main idea this morning, and it's simply the title of my sermon, and I'm going to pose it in the form of a question, and it's this, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? What Solomon wants us to see is that contentment is better than greed, and he wants us to see that the pursuit of things will never ultimately satisfy our hearts. This text is to be a, a confrontation of what we build our lives on and how we view the things that we have. And so there's basically three points in the text. We see this first, things don't satisfy. Look again at verse 
uh, 8 of chapter 5 says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. In a fallen world, Solomon is saying greed will lead to oppression. Solomon is trying to help us cope realistically with life in a fallen world. Now, this is not intended to be a universal truth. It's just a description of how life often is under the sun. We need to understand Ecclesiastes has a different intent than other books in the scriptures. Other books in the scriptures deal with how we should fight things like injustice, but Ecclesiastes is seeking to expose if, it is, if this is all that there is, this is what it will be. This is what life will be like, and ultimately it will be meaningless. Just consider the stark reality this morning. If you take down an oppressor, another rises in its place. We, we know this from past centuries. We take down Hitler and Stalin emerges. We take down Al-Qaeda and ISIS emerges. And on and on and on, the oppressors will come and go. And even more than that, even if we're not just talking about egregious oppressors, but just everyday fallen sinful leaders, Solomon is pointing out that they can all pass the buck. They all have somebody who's higher than them as it comes to responsibility. So they just say, this isn't my fault. You should talk to my superior. And so he says, even worse than that, the ultimate authorities are so high up in their authority that they are so just out of touch with how what they do affects the everyday lives of the people under their charge. So the author has no illusion of a utopian bliss in this life. Nor, verse 9, does he think overthrowing the system will make anything any better. One commentator says that, verse 9, this, this idea of a, of a king committed to cultivating the fields, it's, it's simply this, tyranny. So like a king who is oppressive yet helps cultivate the fields, tyranny is better for us than anarchy. And that's what Solomon is trying to show. The love of money Greed will lead to things like oppression. But verse 10, look what it says in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. This is futile. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Verse 10, the love of money, the love of things will not satisfy. And so it's a, it's a futile pursuit. Now, keep in mind, as we kind of work our way through the passage, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes has already condemned both the lazy man and the workaholic. That's not really what's in mind here. He's calling both to contentment and to joy in what they have. In fact, he bookends the passage with this word vain or this, this word futile, meaning uh, uh, futile, meaning if you believe things are going to bring meaning and happiness, that is an absurd thought. Verse 10, it will never be enough. Verse 11, it will bring its own problems. In fact, there's this idea of leeches. People will come, hangers on who will come to take your money. Verse 12, this craving for more will cause you not to even get sleep. So verse 10, he's just saying straight up, money will not satisfy you. A reporter once asked Rockefeller, who at the time was the richest man in the world, which million that you have earned was your favorite? And his answer was this, my next million. It's probably some of us hearing this this morning and you're just saying internally, yeah, but that would not be true of me. 
If I could just get X or if I could just get this amount of money, then I will be happy. And yet the testimony of the scriptures and the testimony of history is that you will not be the exception. My twin brother wrote commentary on Ecclesiastes and he reminded me of a time when we were kids and it was a Christmas time and we were desperately wanting this new Nintendo game that had come out. It's this Nintendo game called WWF WrestleMania. Anybody knows what that is? That's back when wrestling was just decent. And Nintendo was the best gaming system. It's gone downhill after we only needed buttons A and B. But the problem was that after we got this game at Christmas, after two hours of playing it, we simply wanted a new game. And that plays itself out in so many more things that are much more serious than a Nintendo game. On and on and on we could go with a testimony that regardless of what you have, if you have a little or if you have a lot, people want more. And Solomon is saying, this is, this is vanity. This is wasteless pride. Because what's important is not the amount. What's important for us is what's going on in our heart. Verse 11, he tells us something like what Michael Scott from the office says, more money, more problems. As having more stuff increases those who want to feast on your stuff. One of my guilty pleasures is listening to true crime podcasts. And recently I listened to one about a man in Florida. He was a poor man who won uh, a lot of money and ended up after the, the tax cut, he ended up making about $17 million in the lottery. And because of that, he had so many people asking him for money that within a couple of years, that 17 million was down to about 50,000. There's a football player from years gone by, a guy named Bernie Kosar, who talked about, he lost all his money or most of his money. He talked about at one point, he was paying for 65 cell phones. And he said, I use one phone. Many of the people who I pay for, I don't even know their names. This is what the picture is of you can gain all this stuff and all it's gonna mean is more and more people are gonna ask you and try to, to take the things that you get. That shows you part of the meaninglessness of it. Verse 12 is saying contentment with a good day's work rather than greed will satisfy you regardless of the station in life. It will give the laborer sleep. Get this picture of what verse 12 is trying to say. An honest day's work with a deep breath of just reflection at the end of the day that says, I'm thankful for what I have is the sort of thing that leads to a peaceful night even if your head is laid down on a worn pillow. On the other hand, a rich man's appetite for more, just to make a little more money, just to get a few more things, it consumes them so much that they stay awake at night trying to figure out how can I get even more and they can't even fall asleep on their fancy sheets and pillows. So as one commentator puts it like this, worry and anxiety become their actual rewards. And he says this, if there's anything worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. Which leads to the second thing, things don't go with you. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, much vexation and sickness and anger. Solomon says that greed is meaningless because you can't take your wealth with you. 
And worse than that, it ruins your family and it ruins you. He gives us this case study of a man who loses everything in one fell swoop, leaving nothing to his offspring. And just how tragic is that? Take this with the previous verses. It is doubly tragic. He has ruined his own life by these pursuits. And then because of that, he's ruined his family's life. And acquiring these things that do not satisfy him, he has now ruined his life and he's ruined his family's life. Do you see how fleeting this pursuit can be? It seems that in order to gain more, he has made a risky business move that has collapsed. And, and this, this can easily happen in a fallen world. It's, it's so easy for our things to be taken away, oftentimes by things that are not our fault, fault at all. So he did not enjoy his gain or the things, and he ultimately lost them. But it's even worse than that because the family he was supposed to provide for now has nothing in their hands. He has lost his time with them in order to gain things. And now because of that, he's not only lost them, he's lost these things as well. And so verse 16, the preacher calls this a grievous evil, a deadly evil. Because in the pursuit of stuff, even if he had not lost it all in this business venture, he would have lost it all in death. You know, when you think about a topic that's as depressing as this, you should think about things like country songs because they always have lyrics that go along with this there's one country song that talks about the fact that you never see a trailer hitch on a hearse you can't take things with you the pharaohs can pile up all their stuff into pyramids and they can't take it with them and really this this sermon is and this text is all about money but just think about this in light of eternity think about how often we build our lives on things that are temporary and, and many of those temporary things are really really important but like we, we dominate our lives with things like politics. And again, they're not unimportant. They, they matter. We're to, to love neighbor. The, the act of being engaged in politics is a love of neighbor issue. But we become so obsessed. We become so divided and embittered towards one another. Even some who call each other brother and sister. Because we get so dominated by the temporal rather than the eternal. And that's, that's what he's trying to say here, particularly about money. The very things that he should have been giving his life to, like his family, he ignored in the pursuit of stuff. And verse 17 tells us it leaves him miserable. And this was my friend's dad. Like this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Here's the point. Life is unpredictable and things can be taken away in one fell swoop. So don't build your life on things that will so easily be taken away. Don't ask out of life something that life cannot give you. The preacher is saying that this is worthless. He's, he's comparing it to the pursuit of trying to capture the wind. So Solomon turns now and tries to give some direction. So he thirdly says this, be content in the things that God has given you. And this is really the rest of the passage. He says this in verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all the toil which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him. For that is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Solomon says, rather than greed, find contentment in what God has, has given you. The writer of Hebrews will say this in Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For he said this to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice who shows up to be the main character in these verses. And it is, as with the whole Bible, it is God himself. The author is saying this, build your life recognizing the gifts that have come from above. This chapter is not saying that wealth is bad. This chapter is not saying that work is bad. Rather, it's saying construct your life on the things that matter. Be content with the things that have been given to you. See them as gifts from above. For it says there in the verses, this is good and fitting, or this is good and appropriate. He says, be happy with your food and with your drink and with your work. Enjoy your Diet Coke and your queso and your steak and your bacon and your tacos and your time with family and friendships and a roof over your head. For the one who is content with what they have, who recognizes them as gifts from above that are to be received with gratitude and not with grumbling. The author is saying this sort of person will not be overwhelmed by the hard things of a fallen world because his eyes will be set more on the divine yet even simple blessings that are his from above. He's so thankful for what the Lord has given to him. He's so content in what he has been given that he can't get distracted by all the harsh realities of life. Chapter six, Solomon continues this argument, but he does so with this, this really jarring illustration that's, that the discontented man is worse than even a stillborn baby. He says this, look at verse one. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. Man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks Nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is futile. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, the child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness. In darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. The point of this passage is not how much or how little you have, but rather how do you view what you have. We are to enjoy what we have rather than be consumed with what we don't. He is saying, you want to know a way to not get bogged down by the harsh realities of a fallen world? Enjoy what you have. My brother says it like this, time flies when you're having fun. When you're pleased with what you have, the days will pass by. It's important to see how serious Solomon is in making the point. In the Old Testament, the blessed life was seen as a long life with lots of children. So he is pointing out a man who is to be considered by many to be blessed. He's to have some of the highest of all earthly blessings, and yet he does not appreciate them. And because of that, he is no better off than a baby who never sees life because that baby will never suffer, that baby will never be unsatisfied, and in the end, they will end up in the same place. Verse 3 through 6 show us this supposedly blessed man but sadly, this, this unsatisfied man is no better off. Text seems to indicate he's all alone. He doesn't even have a proper burial, which means he goes unlamented in his death. Nobody misses him. 
Sure, people might show up at his funeral to fight over what money he used to have, but they do not shed tears for this miser. Yet people will show up and be deeply grieved over a miscarried baby. And interestingly, Solomon is telling us this baby, like the laborer of chapter 5, at least gets rest. This baby will never know the pain of a fallen world. So please hear this. I want you to view this topic, not with an earthly mindset, but with a heavenly one. If this is it, if this is all life has to offer, that's things. And these things will not satisfy us. They'll be gone in a flash. To build our lives on those sort of things will leave us where we were if we had never survived our mother's womb. If this is it, and even this will not make us happy or go with us, we are above all people to be pitied. But if we judge life and find contentment in what we do have, if we build our life on meaning above the sun, then both a lifetime of pleasure and a lifetime of pain will make more sense. He's saying, don't fill your life with the things that just won't cut it when it comes to how deep your true needs actually are. For to do so, he says, verse 1, is an evil that weighs heavy upon mankind. So he continues, verse 7, being consumed with just getting more is an appetite that will ultimately not be filled. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite that is also vanity and striving after wind. Notice the sadness of our lives. If indeed life is only under the sun, you basically, think about the futility of this. You basically eat in order to get energy so that you can work so that you can eat. And even if you enjoy what you eat, and my physique should clearly show you that I do, even so, one commentator points out, your mouth and not your mind becomes your master. And think about the meaningless of life under the sun. Again, if life is only under the sun. I know this seems bleak. Brothers and sisters, this is why something like Darwinism, evolution, is a theory of life under the sun that is hopeless. We have something better than that, and I'll get there in just a second. You might sit there and think, well, if this is it, then it's better to be rich and it's better to be, ro- to, to be wise. And the preacher comes back in in verse 8 and says, really? Is that so? Why is that? Because he says this, ultimately in death, the rich and the poor and the wise and the fool become utterly equal in death. Death has a complete indifference to your station in life. Tolstoy has a short story that's titled how much land does a man need and it gets at the point of this story it's this sad story of a peasant farmer who says to himself he says if i just get a little land i'll be happy and the devil overhears him and starts giving him a little land and so he starts trading up for bigger land and ultimately he dies in a quest for this huge plot of land and the story ends with a servant a servant burying him and delivering this tragic statement. 
He says this, ultimately, six feet from his head to his heels was the only plot of land this man needed. Brothers and sisters, again, if this is all there is, if the best thing that we can hope for is the American dream, that will ultimately turn out to be a nightmare. Verse 9 is saying, be content with what you see that is yours rather than craving for more. That's the whole point of, of what you see with the eyes. Be content with what is right in front of you. I told you all this was a doomsday sermon, and I want to say, Pastor Ryan, thanks a lot for this passage. But is this pessimism or is this realism? Again, if only there is life under the sun, this is a realistic picture. So verse 10 to 12, get at this. We cannot change the way the world is because we are not the ones who have authority or power. But I do think these verses are the ones that will give us a glimpse of hope. Verse 10, he says this, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives, the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? These verses are clear that God is in control. It's hearkening us back to Genesis. Genesis 2, 19 and 20. The one who names is the one who has power and authority. And we're not able to dispute with him. For Job says, who can counsel God? It's a foolish thing. It's a waste of words to argue with him. And so these verses are an echo back to Genesis 1 through 3. The, the term man is, is the word Adam. So it's thinking back to what's happened in the garden. And this word has this linguistic link to the word dust from previous in the chapter. It's a reminder from dust we come and to, to dust we are headed. And sadly, in Eden, man tried to contend or tried to dispute with God. Adam and Eve sought to wrestle with God in the garden. So this is calling us back. First and foremost, it's calling us back to a time before the fall. It's calling us back to a time when everything under the sun was good. But it's also calling us back to the fall. Tragically, since Adam's fall, it's, the verse is clear, everything now passes like a shadow. Only God knows what is to come after we are gone from under the sun. And it is, in one sense, a very depressing ending. One that describes modern man well. Basically, the sentiment is this. What good then is it if not one person can tell us what happens after this life? But even this echo to Eden would have called to mind, for these readers, it would have not just called to mind the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. It would have not just called to mind the curse of Genesis chapter 3, but more than that, what immediately follows the curse. And brothers and sisters, that's the promises of Genesis 3.15. That somebody is going to come who is going to fix everything that is broken under the sun. Yet here's the problem, brothers and sisters, guests that are here. All of us at times have built our lives on stuff. All of us have built our lives on the temporal. All of us have lacked contentment. Even worse than that, if this life is all there is, we're all headed for the same ending. 
But that's the point of Ecclesiastes. We have to come to grips with the bad in order to taste just how sweet the good is. The brothers and sisters, this text is telling us that the world is a horrible place to place your final investment. If you're building just for this life, that is a horrible thing. There will be horrible return on that sort of investment. For God has not built us to be satisfied by this world alone. Again, Solomon earlier in the book has told us this. God has set eternity in our hearts. So rather than build your life on what is below the sun, build your life on what is above the sun. And yet there is a problem, as verse 12 points out. None of us know what is beyond the sun. None of us know what happens beyond that. And in the midst of this gloom, there is good news. For God is not just going to take us above the sun to show us something more meaningful. No, rather, he is going to come down under the sun in the person of his son to redeem us and to rescue us from all that has gone wrong. And how did he do it? How does he redeem us from the curse of this life? Paul tells us very clearly in the book of Galatians, he redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Hour after hour, the Son of God would bear the full brunt of the penalty due our sins. Sins like our rebellion against God and our greed and our lust and our lies and our pride and our sinful cravings bearing in his own body the punishment of all those who have sinned demonstrating that they have placed their meaning in things that will not last Paul describes what happened at the cross as an act of grace and here's how he described it as we think about this in terms of money for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ though he was rich Yet for your sake, he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. He would die under the weight of that cross. And yet that's not the end of his story either for God will not let his Holy One see decay. God will not let his Holy One return to the dust. He will be brought back from the brink. He will be raised from the dead. He will walk out into a Middle Eastern sun and he will promise his people that if they are found in him by repentance and faith that ultimately they will not return to the dust either. They will not be left for decay under the sun. They will have life with him beyond the sun. This is the promise one of Genesis 3.15. This is Jesus, the Savior of all who believe, who put their faith and trust in him. So brothers and sisters, the end of the matter is this. Ultimately, there is something better than futility for us. Meaning is to be found in Christ who came down under the sun. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we can have hope in this life and also hope in the life to come. And Paul says it like this to the church at Corinth. He says this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, listen to this, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not futile. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to hear me this morning. Steve Jobs and the single mom down the street 
they will have the same amount of wealth when they head to judgment. Worse than that, the things they gain in this life will not ultimately satisfy them. Augustine, the early church father, would say it like this, our hearts will continually be restless until they find their rest in God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the most important thing you can hear from me this morning is simply this. Your life will be restless. Your life will ultimately be meaningless until you find your rest and your meaning in Christ and in Christ alone. And if that's you, we would love to talk with you about what it means to to believe on him, to turn from your sins, to put your faith and trust in him. And at the end of this service, we would love to talk with you about that. And brothers and sisters, as we close, I'm going to return to my three applications. Here's how we respond to this message. Number one, be content with what you have under the sun. Paul tells Timothy this. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Listen to this. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. But as for you, man of God, flee these things. Number two, build for what is beyond. Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom. These other things will be added to us. Psalm 1 and 2 give us a great picture of what it looks like to build our life on the things to come. Psalm 1, delight in the scriptures. Psalm 2, delight in the son. Why? Because those sort of things have value for this life, but they have great value for the life to come. And then finally, because of his great grace, because of what we've been shown in the gospel, the radical generosity of Christ should now make us in this life under the sun a radically generous people. Again, for our sake, he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. You know, as opposed to my friend that I mentioned at the beginning, my, <clears throat> my mom's brother would have had from every outer appearance in this life a very meager life. He had severe epilepsy. He had dyslexia. Most of his life, he lived in a trailer home. Yet he was one of the kindest, most gracious men I knew. He was a very happy man, you could say. And he knew the Lord Jesus. He knew that this life under the sun was not the only life he had. And this past week, He went on to his eternal reward. And here's what that reward is, Paul tells the church at Ephesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. He says this later, that you may know what is hope, the hope to which he has called you, And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance with the saints? You see, brothers and sisters, godliness with contentment holds great hope for this life. And gloriously, it also holds hope for the life to come. So my plea this morning is that you would build your life on the things that will last. Indeed, what will it profit us to gain the entire world and yet lose our own soul? Jesus is very clear. We cannot serve both God and money.
Father, we thank you for your word. Paul tells us it's able to make us wise for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray if there are some here who don't know him, Father, that they would be made wise for salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, this is a stark, realistic text. And yet, Father, those of us who know how bad the bad news is know how sweet the good news is. Father, Paul also tells Timothy there that the word is able to train and instruct us in righteousness. And Father, I pray those of us that are yours would be trained and instructed this morning, particularly as it comes to something like money and contentment, that we would be trained and instructed in righteousness. Father, would you make us more like the Lord Jesus? Father, you make us so grateful for the salvation that we have received. Would you make us content with the blessings that you've given us from above? And Father, would you make us long for his appearing? Would we long for the day in which we will see our Savior face to face and be made like him in every way? So help us now as we sing. Father, we again pray that you would be changed from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.